Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. One of the driving forces of international relations over the last several years has been rivalry between Arab states on the Arabian Peninsula. This is sometimes called the Gulf Crisis, and put simply, it refers to tensions and hostilities between Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and the United Arab Emirates on the one hand, and Qatar on the other. The roots of this rivalry run deep, but around the time of the Arab Spring, these tensions came very much to the surface. The United States has historically had a profound interest in mitigating hostilities between Gulf Arab states, principally because each of those countries are key U.S. allies. The United States, for example, has a major naval base in Bahrain and a major air force base in Qatar. But the Trump administration has been less adept at doing so, and now these tensions are not only affecting relations between Arab Gulf states, but also leaving their marks in other regions around the world. As my guest today, Elizabeth Dickinson, explains, the Gulf crisis has been exported. The true fallout from this feud has not been felt on the Arabian Peninsula, she argues, but on battlefields across the greater Middle East and in the fragile politics of countries in the Horn of Africa, specifically Sudan and in Somalia. Elizabeth Dickinson is a senior analyst with the International Crisis Group, and in our conversation, she explains both the roots of this rivalry in the Gulf and how this crisis in the Gulf is stoking instability across several regions of the world. Listening back to my interview, which was conducted a few weeks ago, I'm just struck by the almost Cold War dynamics that this rivalry is inspiring in countries in the Horn of Africa. And I'll also link to a longer report that the International Crisis Group has published on this very topic. As always, you can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out that report and also get in touch with me if you have suggestions of people you'd like me to interview or topics you'd like me to cover. I do love hearing from you, so send me an email using the contact button. And before we begin, a note from Northwestern University's online master's program in global health. You can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it is needed the most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more, or go to sbs.northwestern.edu slash global. Also, feel free to email me if you have questions about this program, and I'm happy to forward them along to uh, the administrators of that great program. All right, now here is my conversation with Elizabeth Dickinson of the International Crisis Group. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization 
hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Yeah, so there's been um, historically, I, I think, a tension in the Gulf between uh, Saudi Arabia and some of the smaller Gulf states. And I think, you know, maybe about 15, 20 years ago, it was really sort of a, a matter of size. Um, you know, Saudi Arabia was such a dominant force, both in sort of the internal regional policy and also foreign policy, that um, several of the other smaller Gulf states tried to sort of carve out their independence um, by doing certain things or having a foreign policy that was distinct and and decidedly different from Saudi policy. And Qatar was the sort of prime example of this um, under the former emir, um, Hamad. They really sort of started doing things uh, differently from Saudi Arabia, again, to sort of find a niche and, and also to sort of hedge against having their own independence um, marginalized or having their role sort of succumb to that of their much larger neighbor, Saudi Arabia. So um, fast forward to sort of the Arab Spring, and and essentially what happened is you began to see the, the origins of the split that is now very much in the open today. So when the uprisings happened, I think the reaction from the various Gulf states was pretty dramatically different um, from Saudi Arabia and also in the UAE. Um, I think there was a real sort of aversion and concern about what these uprisings would lead to, about the instability that they would breed, um, about the fall of, you know, regimes that had sort of maintained a status quo, um, certainly not an ideal one, but a, a sort of manicure of calm in the region. And uh, I think from Turkey and Qatar, particularly on the, the sort of other side of the view of that, they really saw these these uprisings as an opportunity to empower some of their allies in the region, particularly linked to the Muslim Brotherhood and Islamist forces. They sort of really got behind the wind of these uh, uprisings and, and saw it as a as a wave that they could ride to their own political advantage. So and, and, and probably and, and use tools like Al Jazeera to sort of cheer on these uprisings. Is that fair to say? That's exactly right. They they leveraged sort of all of their tools of foreign policy, whether it was soft power like Al Jazeera or... And we should or say, sorry, Al Jazeera is, is based in, in Doha, Qatar, we should say, for people who are unaware. Correct. Um, and uh, also just direct support in some cases, for example, in Syria to certain factions of the opposition that were ideologically or politically aligned to them. So it, it, really, though, I think the more profound split that started in the Arab Spring, and aside from sort of specific differences over what to do in Libya or who should win in Syria, um, I think the real real split happened when it became clear that these uprisings were, uprisings were going to lead to a vacuum of leadership in the region. And suddenly the Gulf states found themselves in this position where they were the only ones who were in a position to stand up and play that leadership role in directing the region in any one direction. So they all sort of tried to stake a claim to that. I think, you know, we saw that in, in what's played out in the years since the Arab uprisings. They've tried to influence transitions, tries to carve out allies with very different visions of what the Middle East should look like. And those competing visions are really at the core of the Gulf dispute. What is the future of the Middle East? Who is driving it? Who is the leader of this region? Who sets the rules of this region? Um, and that's a dispute that is very much still ongoing. And, and I think the two sides of the Gulf Rift with Qatar 
on the one side, uh, Saudi Arabia and the and the UAE, also Bahrain on the other. Um, they really have very different views about the direction that they'd so, like to see the region in. So, like, what are those views? Like, what would, say, Qatar <laughs> like to see that the Saudi-UAE-Bahraini alliance would not like to see and vice versa? Well, one of the things that it really comes down to is the role of political Islam in in the Middle East. And by political Islam, I don't mean Islam the religion. I mean um, the idea that Islam should be a governing principle of um, a state, so that a state should organize its government around the ideas of Islam. So this is something, uh, for example, the philosophy of the Muslim Brotherhood, but also some other sort of peripheral Islamist groups. I think Qatar, and as well as Turkey, is very comfortable with that idea. Um, and saw, <clears throat> first of all, they're allied to many of these groups sort of as a strategic and tactical means of projecting their own influence. Um, this is one of the most sort of well-networked organizations and movements in the entire region. So if you're a small state like Qatar, Qatar only has 350,000 people, um, 350,000 Qataris, I should say. Uh, and so to project power in the whole Middle East, they needed to plug into a movement that was much better resourced and networked and had sort of its tentacles and arms in all sorts of places and the Muslim Brotherhood fit that mold. So they'd be very happy to see that group and its affiliates sort of rise in power. The UAE and Saudi Arabia, by contrast, uh, very much appreciate a word that they, they, they often repeat the word stability when they talk about their, their, their vision for the Middle East. And stability sort of means economic openness and political closeness. Um, and and, and it's this idea that, that sort of maintaining a status quo and a calm and a, and a level of sort of predictability in the Middle East is really the best way to um, engender prosperity. And, th and this is really quite evident in the UAE's own domestic model, right? So the UAE is one of the most prosperous and, and sort of um, highly emulated economies in the Middle East. Uh, but it's a very politically closed society. There is no dissent. There is no sort of questioning of foreign policy or security policy. And and to them, that's sort of the, the, the right route for a region that they view as politically immature uh, to the extent that it could uh, sustain democracy. So I guess one question that I've always had about the Qatari position here is that ultimately, I mean, doesn't political Islam threaten the Qatari regime as well? I mean, you know, they are not a democracy. You know, political Islam has avenues for democracy in it. I, I just that that was sort of one, um, one sort of point that I've always never really quite understood. Yeah, I think it's it's. Um, I I would explain it very simply with the the sort of uh, common phrase uh, you don't bite the hand that feeds you. Um, I think there is an understanding that 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 Qatar needs to exist in the way that it, it exists in order to have the resources and the capacity to support this movement in other places where it is under threat. Um, but, you know, a lot of, uh, I, I would say that there is, there's both a, a sort of strategic and, a, and an ideological affinity to the brotherhood, I think, in Doha. So I do think that although the regime doesn't necessarily look like a brotherhood regime, um, I do think that there are many in the government who find um, common cause and feel that there is sort of a shared ideological purpose with Islamist movements in the Middle East. So these rivalries in, in the Gulf, uh, you know, had existed for a long time. They got exacerbated by events of, of the Arab Spring, as you said. But then in, in 2017, things really got bad very quickly. C can you describe, uh, you know, what happened and how that sort of shaping events, not just in the Gulf, but, uh, you know, in other parts of the world as well? 
That's right. So what had essentially been sort of a behind the scenes dispute that was very evident to people in the region, but maybe not so clear, um, you know, above board, it just sort of broke into the open in 2017. And I think the, the context of why that happened is a little bit important. Um, just a few years earlier, uh, Saudi Arabia had a transition in which a new king came uh, into the throne, King Salman. And in 2017, right when the right before the um sorry, the Gulf crisis erupted sort of right before King Salman named his son as his crown prince and successor, Mohammed bin Salman. So in many ways, the, the reason that the Gulf crisis sort of erupted into the public view was as a way to sort of set the ground rules for the new era of Saudi foreign policy. So here was a new ruler coming sort of into office, a new successor, a sort of new vision for what Saudi Arabia was going to do both at home and in the region. And, and this was sort of a way to, to lay on the law, if you will, or an attempt to, um, before uh, Mohammed bin Salman became crown prince, I think. So it, I think there was an expectation when the Gulf crisis broke out that it would be fairly um, short-lived and easy to unwind. And we saw this in the initial mediation efforts, particularly from the United States, which really sort of downplayed and underestimated the depth of this crisis and sort of belittled in many ways some of the concerns of both sides when they tried to mediate. Instead, uh, I think, you know, as we've seen now, both sides just sort of dug in their heels. And more than digging in their heels, they've actually sort of looked for new theaters in which to um, play out these these rivalries and grievances. Um, if we look at the Middle East, I, you know, one of the reasons I think this is geographically expanded is because, frankly, the Middle East is sort of an overplayed territory. Um, all of the countries involved in the Gulf crisis have lost influence in the Middle East since 2011. That's sort of, there's no way to question that. It's just a fact. So if you're going to sort of change the balance of power in your own dispute, Gulf country versus Gulf country, you need to look for new geography. You need to look for new allies and new places where that balance of power can shift. And one of the major places where that's been the case is the Horn of Africa. And so you've seen an, an extreme um, extension of and projection of influence and power and general interest by all the Gulf countries into the Horn of Africa. So, so that's fascinating. So, so, so because like Syria is stalled, um, and because other other parts of the region are are stalled, they've looked to the Horn of Africa to to sort of expand this rivalry and wield their influence. Can can you describe how that is playing out? For example, in like Somalia. Yeah, so the, I think the two clearest cases that we've seen it are Somalia and Sudan. So in Somalia, um, in in recent years, uh, the UAE in particular, before the Gulf crisis, had set up sort of a, a, a relatively significant military footprint. Um, they had worked uh, in, in sort of combating Shabaab. They set up a counter piracy force. Um, they had sort of a significant footprint. And on top of that, they had signed several agreements to develop ports on the Somali coastline. So specifically with Berbera in Somaliland, the breakaway region, and in Puntland at the port of Basasa. Um, after 2017, I think uh, uh, Qatar really sort of invested very heavily in, in Somalia and trying to bring it sort of on side to its own alliance. Um, they supported someone very close to the president who sort of backed his, his presidential campaign and, and by most accounts still wields quite a bit of influence in Doha. Essentially what happened is that it, it appears that um, after the Somali government de facto aligned with 
the Qataris, there was a lot of pressure put on UAE interests in the country. So, for example, uh, the parliament started to oppose some of the port deals that had been signed. Um, there was pressure on the military base. Uh, so it, all of this sort of culminated in a, a major eruption in, in 2018 with a particular incident, and it's quite colorful incident, um, an Emirati tell, plane, yeah. yeah, an Emirati plane carrying around ten million dollars in cash arrived in Mogadishu. Um, the Emiratis tell us that they intended that money to go to pay for their military training program, uh, but the government in Mogadishu accused them of trying to buy off parliamentarians <laughs> for a key upcoming vote or some other nefarious activity. Um, confiscated the money and sort of, I, you know, in, 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 as is always very important, humiliated uh, the, the sort of people involved in the altercation. So this was really sort of perceived, I think, both um, by the Qataris and the UAE, but also by Somalis and, frankly, um, all observers in the region as, as really a standoff between the Qataris and the Emiratis in Mogadishu about who was going to control this key capital in terms of uh, the most external influence. Uh, in the end, the Emiratis sort of packed up their stuff. They, you know, sort of evacu evacuated the military base, pulled out. Um, and what we have today is, is we've seen uh, the result has been extremely destructive for Somalia itself because what the UAE has done, because they were sort of kicked out, quote unquote, from Mogadishu, they really doubled down on their friends and allies in Somalia's regions, which already had sort of a separatist tendency. So today you have a center of Somalia, Mogadishu, that is essentially aligned with Qatar, and you have num numerous Somali regions, Somaliland, Puntland, Jubaland, um, others sort of really heavily aligned with the UAE, which renders the governing f function of Somalia basically impossible. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, under, you know, it's like a very weak central government to start with. So if you have these like regions or, or states is probably a good way of, of, of thinking about them as sort of aligned to different foreign power than the federal government. Exactly. You know, rivalry ensues. That's exactly right. And, and, and today, you know, I think Somalia is, is taking a step backwards because of this. Um, all of the efforts that the international community had put into strengthening the central government and sort of facilitating better relations between the states and the federal government in terms of power sharing, revenue sharing, etc. All of that is sort of on the back burner because you just have this situation geopolitically that's, that's very untenable in terms of finding a compromise. Like, are the costs borne by Qatar or UAE, like, terribly significant to them, at least in, in Somalia? So I think the, um, there is a significant cost, um, I think, in several ways. In Somalia, I think the, the UAE paid very heavily for what happened in the sense that they lost, of course, they lost their military base in Mogadishu, Um and they lost a, a major multi-year sort of investment in training up uh, fairly significant sort of special forces type troops within the Somali government that they had hoped would, you know, work towards countering Al-Shabaab and, and, and other um, sort of, you know, opposition um, violent extremist groups in the state. So I think they lost that security investment, but they also lost a huge, there was a huge reputational cost. And, and that is going to weigh on 
um, I think all both sides of the Gulf crisis are going to pay very heavily for their sort of extreme doubling down on on uh, on their positions over the coming years. Uh, there really is a perception that these Gulf countries are sort of just coming in and throwing money around and acting sort of as neo-colonialists and um, sort of trying to buy their way into power and. I, you know that this is transparent. People know this. It's there. It's hard to miss. So this is certainly going to color their relationship with these countries for for a long time to come. Can you talk briefly about how Sudan, which is you know in the midst of this transition right now, it has become a venue for this library, uh, a venue for this uh, rivalry? So Sudan is a very important country for both sides of the Gulf crisis. And so that has made the transition very high stakes for both of them. Um, during Bashir's rule, uh, Bashir was generally closer to Turkey and Qatar um, than he was to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. But Saudi Arabia and the UAE also invested heavily in his government because they wanted him to flip from um, basically being allied with Qatar and also Iran to being allied with them. So you had this sort of battle of uh, sort of courting the rulers of Sudan um, about, you know, who's, who was going to be sort of more closely allied with Khartoum. Um, and, and a lot of money was spent trying to, to sort of woo the Bashir, the Bashir regime toward one side or another. So when it became evident that he, his regime was close to collapse, uh, there was really a sort of scramble to try to make sure on both sides that they were well-placed after whatever was going to follow. Uh, because again, the stakes were very high. Sudan being uh, one of the largest countries in the Horn of Africa, um, sitting just at the foot of Egypt, um, including the Nile waters uh, next to Ethiopia, which is also in transition, extremely important country for the Horn. So the stakes for Sudan were just very, very high. Um, and, and what we saw happen was essentially that the that Saudi Arabia and the UAE really sort of strongly backed to push by the military to go in and oust Bashir and then set up this transitional council. Um, now, it, the result today, uh, you know, fast forward a little bit, appears to be somewhat of a, you know, caveated success story in the sense that um, after some months of pressure and um, uh, both from the U.S., but also through the Gulf on, on their allies within this Sudanese military. The, the military in Sudan has signed a sort of transitional agreement with protesters, and there is at least now a path on paper to civilian government in Sudan in a way that, that does, again, at least at the surface, appear to promise some sort of legitimate transition. Um, but I think there are a lot of concerns and caveats about sort of where the Gulf really remains in terms of what they'd like to see in Sudan. And the most alarming incident that sort of demonstrates the risk is the crackdown on June 3rd this year that the military undertook against protesters um, on the street. Now, the elements of the military that are um, alleged to have undertaken that crackdown are still in power, and they're very much allied to the Gulf states, to Saudi Arabia and the UAE particularly. So while the Gulf states have sort of seen a tactical and strategic reason to push those the Sudanese military to make an agreement with the protesters. It, I think it's yet to be seen whether they have a real commitment to civilian government in Sudan and whether that's even a goal that they would, um, you know, that they would have. Um, so, I, you know, I think it's easy now for all of us sort of watching Sudan to say, okay, we, we sort of fixed that one. It's on a transitional path. Everything is going to be fine. The Gulf is playing a constructive role. And, and I think our message from crisis group would be vigilance, 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 because the coming months are going to determine 
what is the balance of power within Sudan between protesters and military? And, and for sure, the Gulf countries are going to want a say on that because their allies, bottom line, are within the military. Now, meanwhile, just a final element to add a little spice. Um, when all of this happened... Because we, we know what, what this region needs is more spice. Yes, definitely. Um, <laughs> after the transitional agreement was signed, um, I think Qatar and Turkey to a lesser extent, but particularly Qatar, really felt cut out. Uh, because essentially they had been marginalized from this um, process that led to the agreement. Uh, there's indications that the sort of transitional government is very uninterested in engaging with them, probably again under pressure from Saudi Arabia and the UAE. So I, I think there's also a risk that we see the other side of the Gulf crisis sort of try to organize or sort support or mobilize their own allies on the ground. Um, Qatar is fairly close to some of the political Islamists who have traditionally been a part of the government and security forces in Sudan. Um, basically, they will seek to guard their interests, just as the UAE or Saudi Arabia would if they were threatened. So both sides, when their interests are at risk, they're, you know, they, they look for local allies who can who can support those interests. And, and I do think that there is a real risk in Sudan that we sort of see a backlash or a second coming of, of the rival groups trying to, you know, stake their claim to a part of Sudan as well. Well, I'm wondering if you're seeing evidence um, in this region or or elsewhere in the Horn of Africa or elsewhere in Northern, Af uh, Northern Africa or or perhaps in, in, in Southeast Asia or uh, South Asia um, of like that, that sort of causality reversed uh, in which sort of armed groups are the ones who are exploiting the rivalry between uh, Qatar and UAE Saudi uh, alliance and sort of doing so in order to get money and, and guns and arms for, for their own cause. Well, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, across the board, it would be a mistake to see sort of um, <clears throat> the receiving side of the money as a sort of a powerless actor. They are very much aware of sort of the interests that are shaping this competition. And so they play into them and they make their story, they tell their story or create their story around what the Gulf states want to hear and can attract money and funding because of that. This creates a really negative cycle because if you think about it, you know, the Gulf is putting money in to, you know, uh, combat their rivals, protect their interests. Okay. So local actors know that if they play into that competition, they can get more funding, right? So then all of a sudden, all of the incentives are about keeping the competition going rather than unwinding it. Um, because the local actors are intent on keeping their funds and keeping their support from the Gulf. So they have an interest in maintaining the competition. The Gulf states have no interest in unwinding the competition because they don't think that there's any way to settle this dispute without sort of just winning outright. Um, so this this dynamic, I think, is really sort of accelerating in certain circumstances. And, and it's very, very dangerous. So to what extent can this crisis overall, um, the rift between Qatar and, and the rest of the Gulf, be understood or as a consequence of a failure of U.S. foreign policy. We, we haven't talked about it much, but of course, you know, Qatar has a major U.S. air base. There are other, you know, uh, Saudi is a major U.S. ally. Bahrain has a major U.S. naval base. Um, presumably, uh, under normal circumstances, the U.S. government would be able to sort of keep a lid on this rivalry and prevent their two allies from sort of trying to undermine each other in foreign policy. Um, what's happening? Like, like, what has the U.S. been doing now? What has the Trump administration been doing, or I guess in this case, not doing? That's enabling this crisis to exacerbate. I really think that the U.S. misplayed their hand when this crisis first broke out um, because they 
they never understood, in in my view, or they never appeared to understand um, what was behind this crisis. I think they 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 there is a lack of understanding about just how viscerally and ideologically both sides of the Gulf crisis view this dispute. They do not view it as something that they can compromise on because they see it as vital to their sort of very core strategic security interests, right? So when the U.S. first came in and tried to mediate, they sort of downplayed it and and were sort of dismissive in the sense that they thought, okay, you guys are just brothers, go have a summit, you know, um, you know, kiss each other's foreheads, someone kneel before the king, it's going to be fine. Um, and, and that sort of, uh, you know, I think um, it was condescending. And it also, frankly, just failed to absorb what was happening politically in the region. So the U.S. sort of disqualified itself from a mediator, as a mediator very early on. Um, all of the mediation efforts at the moment are going through Kuwait, um, which is a very challenging situation in and of its own right, because Kuwait is a very, is a very, um, in a very perilous position within the Gulf. It's also a very small country. It's it hasn't taken a side in this crisis, uh, which makes it means that it's really torn between sort of two halves of the Gulf, both with dramatically greater resources than it than it itself has. Kuwait is weak domestically. Um, its emir is very is very old, and he's aging, and he's been ill. Um, so it's it's not. Kuwait is not necessarily in a position domestically and and in its own right to sort of play the strong role that would be needed to unwind this crisis. So I I guess in my view, I really see this as sort of a long term reality in the region, because even if we even if we sort of mend up and patch relations between the two countries on on sort of a notional levels, we get them to shake hands. They reopen airspace because Saudi Arabia and UAE have been blockading um, Qatari airspace since the crisis began. If we sort of fix some of those um, surface level things, the fundamental disagreement is going to remain about who leads the region, what sort of leadership that should be, and who gets empowered by that leadership. And that is not a dispute that's going to be settled in a year or five years or 10 years. It's going to continue to shape the region for a significant amount of time. Uh, well, Beth, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful, and I, I now have sort of the context I need to understand uh, the ins and outs of, of this rivalry as it, as it evolves, apparently, for the foreseeable future. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Beth. That was a great conversation. I always love reading and listening to and following the work of Elizabeth Dickinson. I've known her for many years. I've been a great fan of her writing and analysis. So thank you. I also, years ago, served as the publisher of a book she wrote about the Arab Spring. Specifically, the book told the story of a family's quest for justice in Bahrain after a young member of that family was murdered. The book is called Who Shot Ahmed? A Mystery Unravels in Bahrain's Botched Arab Spring. It's available as a Kindle single, and I'll post a link to that book on globaldispatchespodcast.com. It's a great read. It's about the length of a long magazine article, and it both tells a story of this family and also introduces you to the broader dynamics around Bahrain's Arab Spring. See you later. Bye.